New City Church. Grateful to have all of you here on campus, or if you're watching online, grateful to have you joining us through online as well. So today's a great day for us. I want to just begin with a couple of uh, family announcements for our church. I want to footstop the announcement that you heard across our campuses this morning about Orange Day. That's coming up in two weekends, and I know that some of you may be traveling next weekend for the for the holiday weekend. And so I want to just encourage you to come out on Orange Weekend. We'll have it Saturday night and Sunday morning across all of our campuses. And you heard uh, on your campus today what Orange Day is. It's the combination really of the, the love of the family and the light of the church coming together, represented by red for the family and yellow for the church. And when those two things come together, what do they form? A new color, orange. Orange, and that's where orange comes from. So partnering uh, as a church with families to raise up the next generation of Christ followers is what Orange Day is all about. And it's really a celebration of how God is doing that throughout our ministries and our campuses across this city. So we're going to have a lot of students that are baptized on that day on all of our campuses. So we want you to be here to witness that and to encourage them and just to celebrate all the stories and things that are happening across our campuses and our next-gen ministry for children's ministry and student ministry. So I want you to wear orange, okay? Uh, just as a visible expression of our partnership as a church with families of raising up the next generation of Christ followers. So I was raised a Georgia Bulldog fan, so I have one orange shirt in my closet, but I'm going to wear it. All of you Clemson Tiger fans and Tennessee Vols and and. Oh, okay, it's hard for me to say. Florida Gators, if you have orange, that you can, you can wear that. This is your day. But I want to encourage you to wear orange because this is what I want to have happen across all of our campuses and our venues. It's for our students and children to see that they are a part of a church that loves them and believes in them. The greatest gift that we can give to the next generation, the greatest gift that we can give to a future that many of us will not see is a generation of Christ followers lifting up the name of Jesus. Our kids and our students will see a day that we will not see. So the greatest gift that we can give the future of our city, of our state, of our country, of our world, is the next generation of Christ followers. And it's our responsibility as a church, not just for those of us who have kids in our home right now, it's our responsibility as a church, all of us, as, as spiritual mothers and fathers, to be a part of that and raising up the next generation of Christ followers. So Orange Day is an exciting day for us. It's the first time we've done it across all of our campuses. It'll be in two weeks. Wear orange, and we'll celebrate the next generation and all that God's doing in our children and student ministries here at New City. Today, really privileged to have a dear friend with me up on the stage. Uh, her name is Lorinda Deneen. She happens to be the principal of Idlewild Elementary School. So I want to ask you to give a warm New City welcome to <laughs> her. So, yeah, so Lorinda is starting her, this is your sixth year? I'm finishing year five right now. Year so five. Year six Which in principal years is like, like dog years, seven like years, like 35 years, years yeah. 40 years. Okay. Yeah. And tell us, uh, well, first of all, we're so grateful that you would open up your doors and allow us as New City to, to partner with Idlewild. Oh, uh, so we're many, the uh, ones who are grateful. Well, so many of our folks serve as lunch buddies, yeah. as, as tutors, uh, proctoring EOGs this week. Um, and we've been uh, allowed to, to do some special projects throughout the year as well. And, and I want to talk about that 
But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about Idlewild Elementary and, and what makes Idlewild so special. So I, I recognize some faces here because as you said, there are some awesome people who are coming out and helping and maybe you're not even able to come out and help, but you've been so generous to make sure that you're providing things for our students. And it's so special because in our school is the entire world. It is a yeah. very diverse school, which is one of the things that I think is, makes our school so special and such an amazing school because you could walk through our doors and you'll see a little bit of everybody. So we have families who um, bring their children there by choice through the lottery. We do have a partial magnet um, for learning immersion and talent development. And so about 250 of our 1,100 seats are magnet seats. So that leaves over 800 students who are from our neighborhood. Many of them are refugees from country, different countries like Nepal and Burma. There are also a lot of children from the neighborhood. And there's a lot of generational and international poverty in our school. So your help, everything that you do to make our school so much better, it really goes without saying like how grateful we are. So it's my privilege and honor to be here with all of you today. We're grateful. I love what you just said about the different nationalities that are represented in the hallways of Idaho. I think for over 40 yeah, different nationalities yeah, over 40 countries that are there with almost 50 languages. That's amazing. Yeah. And we talked about actually last week as a church about sometimes God calls you to go uh, to different places in the world. And sometimes God calls you to go across the street or across mm -hmm. the room and speak to someone who's going into those places. And one of the things that we love as a church of, of our command, our call as a church to go into all the world and to carry Jesus there is that we can go into the school and in the name of Jesus serve and serve these, these kids and families that represent the world Absolutely. that's in, in the hallways of Idlewild. Absolutely. So talk a little bit about the partnerships and, and what partnerships mean to CMS schools and particularly Idlewild. Yeah. Uh, so partnerships honestly are the greatest thing because there's nothing that we could do in our school without the partnership of our community, our faith-based partners, and of course our families. And in a school like Idlewild, which there are more than 70 schools in Charlotte-Mecklenburg that are considered Title I schools, and that means that you have a huge concentration of poverty. So out of 170 schools, more than 70 of them have a lot of poverty inside. And so when you have that, you don't always have families that are able to contribute and partner. And it could be financially that they're not able to help out, but it's more so about their time because a lot of our families are working two and three jobs to try to make ends meet. So they're not physically able to get into the schoolhouse. And that also means that a lot of our children are going home and they're trying to take care of younger siblings. They're doing a lot of things around the house to try to make ends meet for their family so that they can help out as well. So having partnerships makes such a huge difference because you're able to devote your time, your energy, um, your finances to be able to help children. Like serving as a lunch buddy or coming to be a North Star reading partner makes such a huge impact in the life of a child because they don't always have somebody to read with them. They don't always have someone that's gonna come and sit down and have lunch with them. So when you are able to come and devote, even if it's just 30 minutes or an hour, once a week, or even just a couple of times a month, it really does make a huge difference because that child then has somebody that they can connect with one-on-one -on -one that they may not always have that opportunity to do so when they go home. Yeah, that's great. So we're, we're in the final project of our school year. Yeah. Um, with our partnership with Idlewild and what that looks like is a, a summer scholar program. It's, it's hopefully to provide five new uh, books for each student to take home with them. And, and Lorinda could talk about this so much uh, better than I could, but there's something uh, called the summer slide. 
uh, when kids are out of school for eight to ten weeks in the summer and they're not regularly reading uh, academically, they begin to diminish. And then when they, they come back in August, you got to kind of climb the ladder again, right? So um, there's a real practical outflow of this project of wanting to give uh, books to kids. Uh, study after study shows that if we can put quality books that kids want to read in their hands, they'll do so. Mm-hmm. And we can bridge the gap of, of, of that summer slide. So that's what this project is all about. Uh, just to say, we do three projects at New City throughout the year with our school partnerships. We do a back-to-school project. We do a Christmas project. And we do um, our summer project. So this is the last one. But the projects, just to say, the projects are, are really just an outflow of the partnership. And Lorinda talked about that, just the ongoing partnership and, and so many of you involved on a regular basis. And the projects are just way for us, a, a way for us to highlight the ongoing partnership that we have. So maybe just in our last minute here, Lorinda, Lorinda talk about the, the importance of, of this particular project um, and the difference that it can make in the lives of, of students. I, I would say, honestly, this is probably the most important project of all because, as Chris mentioned, at the start of the year, you all have been so amazingly generous with providing book bags and school supplies and things that teachers and students need. And then in the winter, our school spirit hoodies, which allow every child in our school to be able to represent Idlewild and wear our logo, which is one of them is up on the screen right now. Yeah. But this one is so incredibly important because just a few years ago, there was a, an article written about the book desert. And so in our area of Charlotte, especially in the highest poverty areas, children do not have books. They don't have that access. And many of them, even if they do have a book or two that they can read, they're probably worn out. There are pages that could be torn out, and they also don't have anyone at home to read with them. Or the books aren't on their level. So the project that you all are doing for us right now gives us this incredible opportunity to be able to make sure that every child has five books that they want in their home, not something that was given to them just because it was left over or it was donated, but this time they get to pick the books that they want. They get to go home, read those books over the summer. And as Chris mentioned, the summer slide, it it really is an actual thing that happens where our students will leave us at a certain level and then they come back and there's at least one to two levels drop. And that's a generous one to two level. Sometimes it's even more than that. So the first quarter of the school year, teachers spend trying to build up all of the time lost. And so being able to provide them with these books really makes such a huge difference for them, especially because it's one they want to read. Yeah, that's right. And so thank you. Yeah. So we have a table across all of our campuses today, a summer scholar table that you can donate. If you haven't been able to donate financially, we could use that. We've raised over $25,000 so far. We need to get to 40. So if, if you're able to donate today, we'd love for you to do that. Or if you'd like to sign up this week to come and serve and be a part of the book fair, we're going to be setting up a book fair at Idlewild tomorrow, uh, Monday, and then Wednesday we'll be at Greenway Park and do it all over again. So if you would like to come and be a part of that, it's a great day to come and serve with people in the church together and and make some connections here as you're serving, but also just to to bless kids. And again, we are so incredibly grateful that you would open up your doors and allow us to come and and be a part of what you're doing. The pleasure and gratitude is mine. Thank you all so much. So, um, yeah. Can I pray for you? Yes. Can I pray for you? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this incredible leader. Thank you for the ways that she serves so many families uh, day in and day out. And today I want to pray in Jesus' name that you would encourage her. God, that you would give her wisdom. Your word says that if we lack for wisdom, we should ask for it because you want to give it generously. 
And we pray for wisdom for her. She navigates through all kinds of challenges, I'm sure. And would you give her favor and faith to trust you and believe you? We pray for every single student, all, all 1,600 plus at, at Idawadden Greenway, that they would know that you love them, Jesus, and that there's a church here in the city that believes in them and loves them. And we pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we've been in a series entitled Beyond, and I want to encourage you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, to open to the book of Acts. And we're going to be today in Acts chapter 9. So be opening there to Acts chapter 9. And just as you're turning there, let me give a little bit of a reset for Beyond, because we did one series, one installment in the book of Acts, where we looked at the first five chapters, and we called it Witness. And so if you haven't uh, heard any of those messages, if you're just coming into New City, go back on our website or on the app or where you get your podcast and, and catch up with us uh, in the first part of, of our series, our journey through Acts. And now we're into the second part, which is called Beyond, and we're going to be looking at chapters 6 through 12. And we talked about that there were three initiating events or characters, stories, if you will, that help the gospel to go beyond Jerusalem and Judaism to different cultural groups and geographic spaces. And first of all, it began with the ministry of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. If you, if you didn't hear the message or you missed it, you can go back and listen. But that's the first event or story that really begins to move the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judaism. But then last week we talked about the ministry of Philip. In Acts chapter 8, and the importance of Philip beginning to, to take the gospel to Samaria outside of Jerusalem, and then meeting the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian going back to Ethiopia and spreading the gospel there, and the, the, the gospel begins and the church begins to move beyond Jerusalem and, and, and uh, Judaism. But then the third event, or the third character, if you will, that really helped to initiate the gospel going beyond is the conversion of Saul. And that's the story that we're going to be in for the next two weeks. We're going we're to take two on this one. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. And so again, turn with me, with me there to this passage. And we're going to look at the first nine verses of what some people say is post-resurrection, one of the most crucial events in the history of the world, the conversion of Saul. The Jesus Storybook Bible opens the story this way. And if you don't have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, you need to get one. Of all the people who kept the rules, Saul was the best. I'm good at being good, he'd tell anybody who would listen. He was very proud and very good, but he wasn't very nice. Saul hated anyone who loved Jesus, and he traveled around looking for them. He wanted to catch them and put them in prison. He wanted everyone to forget all about Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus, and he certainly didn't believe that Jesus was alive. You see, Saul had never met Jesus. And so one day, Jesus met Saul. Today's sermon is about how that happened. The stories of Stephen and Philip, the, the prequels, if you will, to, to Saul's conversion, uh, introduce us to this man named Saul. So in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, his name is briefly mentioned. And in Acts chapter 7, the story of, of, of Stephen, we see Saul approving of Stephen's execution and people laying their robes at Saul's feet as a, as a mark of approval and authority that Saul had over that execution and murder. And then in Acts chapter 8, Luke reveals Saul's overwhelming mission in life. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, you can go back and look at it. 
Saul's mission, his purpose in life was to stamp out the gospel, to stop the gospel from going beyond, to stop anybody else from hearing about Jesus and from, from the message of Jesus spreading beyond Jerusalem. In fact, in fact, Saul was so adamant about this that not only did he approve the murder of someone in cold blood, but he separated families, he imprisoned people, he burnt down homes, he did anything and everything he could to stop the gospel. But in an only God way, everyone watch this, in an only God way, God would see fit to use Saul's life to take the gospel further and faster than any other human in history. Talk about an only God story. In fact, Saul's conversion story here in Acts chapter 9 is so important that it's retold three separate times in the book of Acts. Luke records it three separate times in Acts 22 and also in Acts 26 as Saul is uh, standing in front of King Agrippa giving a defense for himself in the gospel. One commentator said this, only an event of greatest importance would merit such repetition by an author like Luke whose hallmark was precision and brevity. This was such a big deal that Luke included it three separate times in his recording of the early church. There's an ancient proverb that says this, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. If you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. And you say, Chris, what does that have to do with Saul? A person like Saul and where we meet him here in Acts chapter 9, a person like Saul is so immersed in their own way that they cannot see the way. Saul was drowning in Lake Me. Some of us live right now in Lake Me, or you can insert your name there. And it's a place of self-preservation. It's a lake of, of self-focus. It's a, it's a lake and a place where everything makes sense to you and where your way is always the right way. This was the place where Saul lived. And his self-focus, his self-righteousness, his self-preservation kept him from seeing the truth. And that's so true for each of us. Many of us are immersed and some of us are even drowning in Lake Me. And until God can drain Lake Me, we can't see our great need for Jesus. God had to drain Saul's lake. He had to drain him of himself so that he could show him his great need for grace and for love. All of us have a little bit of Saul in us. All of us have a little bit of Pharisee in us. And if we're not careful, it can grow and grow and grow. And we can become a wash in ourselves to where we can't see Jesus. And God has to reveal himself to us in a strong and powerful way to humble us, to drain us of Lake Me so that we can see our great need for Jesus. That's the story of Saul. So as I read these first nine verses, I want each of you across all of our campuses and venues and online, I want each of you, New City, to think about your own story, to think about how God met you, your own conversion story, how you met Jesus. And for those of you who are not Jesus followers yet, how God wants to meet you as you hear how he met Saul. This is the conversion of Saul, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Let me read it to you. 
But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. And neither ate nor drank. This is the word of God to each of you. Before we jump into the text, let me just clear up some confusion that many people have about Saul and Paul. This was the same person. And Saul didn't take on the name Paul because of his conversion, because of the story that we're reading today and that we'll cover next week as well. Some people think that Saul changed his name to Paul or that God changed his name to Paul at his conversion. Not true. Paul was actually Saul's Roman name. So it was, his, it was the same name. It wasn't a new name for him. Saul was his Hebrew name, his Jewish name, and Paul was his Roman name. And so taking on the name of Paul, which we begin to read about in Acts chapter 13, it didn't happen at conversion, it happened four chapters later, where Luke initially refers to Saul as Paul, was not actually a product of his conversion, it was a product of his calling. Saul became an apostle to the Gentiles, to Romans. So he took on his Roman name because of his ministry across the Roman Empire. So we'll use Saul and Paul interchangeably because it's the same person and it wasn't a name change. It was just a derivative of his original name. Let's jump into the text beginning in verse 1. These first two words, but Saul. There's a lot in those two words. But Saul. And it harkens us back to what was going on in chapter 7 and 8, certainly, but even all the way back to the beginning of the book of Acts. The church is exploding, isn't it? For those of you who have been a part of our walk through the book of Acts, you know that the church started with 120 uh, frightened followers of Jesus in an upper room, and it's exploded to 10,000 plus, and now it's moving beyond not just just those 120, but it's moving beyond Jerusalem and into other geographical spaces. And the the commission of of Jesus in Acts 1-8 is starting to be fulfilled to go into all the world, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's starting to happen. And in in incredible ways through the ministry of of Stephen, through the ministry of Philip, there's so much momentum. But Saul. And and the picture I get of this in Acts chapter 9 is the gospel is, is advancing. People are coming to Jesus. Men, women, and children are understanding life in Christ. The church is exploding. It's going beyond. And it's like this dam that Saul represents. And the water is is rising. And it's building up against the dam. And as the water rises, there's more and more and more pressure on Saul to stop it. And he's doing everything he can to push against the gospel and push against Jesus and to keep the waters from spilling over to anybody else of the gospel. 
but Saul. Saul is doing what? What is he doing to hold the, the dam of the, of the waters of the gospel back? He's breathing threats of, of murder and violence. And it's not just threats. He followed through in Acts chapter 7 with the murder of Stephen in cold blood through stoning. A brutal way to murder someone. And he watched all of it and approved of all of it. And now he's breathing those same threats and murder against the church. You know, you don't have to think about breathing, do you? Does anybody in here have to, have to consciously think about breathing? As you took your breath then, did you tell yourself to breathe? No. It's involuntary. It's an involuntary action. It shows us the depth of, of Saul's self-righteousness and self-focus. He doesn't even have to think about it anymore. He's breathing threats of murder and violence against other people. Think about the condition of your heart and the place you have to be where that's the involuntary action is that you breathe threats and violence against other people. The coldness of his heart to rip apart families, moms and dads, children from their moms and dads, to burn down houses, to push people out of town, to, to execute someone. Think about what had to be going on in his own heart to get him to that place. It's sad to see what self-righteousness can do to someone. It's sad to see and hard to watch what self-righteousness can do to us. That left unto ourselves unchecked, we begin to swim in Lake Me and we miss Jesus and the people that Jesus puts in front of us. So out of those threats and out of that cold heart and self-righteousness, Saul does what? Look at verse 2. He goes to the high priest. Who was the high priest? His name was Caiaphas. He goes to Caiaphas and he asks him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus was a major city about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. Saul's not going to let it go. He's already driven people out of Jerusalem. Now he's going to do what? He's going to chase them down. He's going to go. It's not just enough that he kicked them out of Jerusalem, the holy city. He's going to track them down, chase them down, bring them back, arrest them, and, and, and bind them there so that they can't spread the gospel any further. So he goes to Caiaphas and he asks for letters. So what was a letter? What would that mean? It meant that he uh, could, could have a warrant, basically. It was a warrant for someone's arrest. And you say, well, why did Caiaphas, the high priest, have any authority over people? Wasn't this Rome? Yes, it was. But Julius Caesar actually made a deal with the high priest that they could have jurisdiction over Jews in Jerusalem. So these Christians who were now in Damascus, most of them were former Jews, and so Caiaphas still technically had authority over them. So he issues warrants to this man named Saul to go track them down and bring them back to keep the gospel from doing what? From going beyond. In the same way that Stephen and Philip showed us incredible zeal in Acts chapter 7 and 8 to take the gospel beyond, ironically, we see incredible zeal from Saul to go beyond. For the opposite reason to stop the gospel. And by the way, this is the first time in verse 2, if you're tracking along, that we see Christians or uh, people who were followers of Christ being known or called people of the way. People of the way. And this was probably a, a title or a name that they gave themselves. Christians aren't being called Christians at this point. That'll come later on in the book of Acts. So they're known as people of the way. And that title carries on all throughout the book of Acts because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. 
So they are people of the way. Now, now look at the wordplay here. This is, this is brilliant. As we get to the next, the next section of scripture here, verses three through five, as Saul was blinded by the light on his way to Damascus with this warrant for people's arrest, it says that he was going on what? He was going on his way. So he's going to track down people of the way, and he's walking in his way. There's a lot there in the passage. Saul is walking on his own, his own way, his own plans, what he wants to do, his own agenda. And the truth is that many of us walk in that same way. We're walking in our way, our ideas, our agenda. I, I want to give an apology to all the Sinatra fans, but I think the, the song that's going to be playing on repeat in hell is I Did It My Way. <laughs> Not because it's a bad song, great song, because of the message. I did it my way. I did it my way. Saul is, Saul is doing it his way. He's walking in his way. And this is where God chooses to meet him. And this is such a, a beautiful picture of the gospel for each of us. Don't miss this. That while Saul was walking on his way, God met him there. So many of us think and we talk about how we met Jesus. Here's the truth, guys. Jesus met us. Jesus came to us. Jesus found us right where we were. Some of you have a story of conversion, as I, I talked about you thinking back to your own story of how you met Jesus, for those of you who are Christ followers. Some of you have a story of growing up in a Christian family where your mom or your dad talked to you about Jesus, and, and maybe your mom or your daddy led you to the Lord by, by your bed when you were four or five or six or seven years old, and you've known Jesus your whole life, and you think, I hear this all the time as a pastor. I don't really have a story like Saul or anything like this. My story is a a boring story. I want to say this to each of you. There are no boring conversion stories. Every single one of your stories about how Jesus met you is an only God miracle. And if you had a mom or a daddy that taught you Jesus growing up, then give thanks for that and how God met you through your parents. For those of you who didn't, give thanks for other people who God's put in your life, for other churches, for other people who are, people have demonstrated and shown you the gospel and spoken the gospel over your life. Every single conversion story is an only God story. And we see this here where God meets Saul on his way and a light shines from heaven. Look at the passage with me. And it blinds Saul. And actually in Acts chapter 26, one of the other uh, recounting of these, th this, this conversion story, Saul himself says before King Agrippa, it was noonday, it was noon, but this light from the heavens shone in such a way and such a brightness that it blinded him and it crippled him. It stopped him dead in his tracks and it buckled his knees and he fell to the ground. It was like an explosion. Have you ever been around a, an explosion or a, a, a raging fire and the heat just hits your face and it just, it just stops you in your tracks? That's what's being described here. The word in the Hebrew is Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. It's, it's the overwhelming presence of God that just stops you in your track. And what happens here for Saul is that God had to, everyone watch this, God had to stop Saul so that he could save Saul. A lot of times God has to stop us so he can save us, so he can love us, so he can speak truth over us, so he can minister to our broken hearts and meet us in our brokenness, in our woundedness. He has to stop us from walking on our way so that he can show us the way. 
And that's what's happening here. Ironically, Saul once had physical sight, but he was spiritually blinded. Now he doesn't have physical sight, but he's beginning to spiritually see. Out of brokenness, God begins to speak to Saul. He gets his attention, and God has to get our attention as well. And then look at verse 5. The light shines, and and the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then verse 5. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the word there in the Greek for Lord is sir. He doesn't know who it is. He's not referring to Jesus as Lord yet. He's just asking, who is this? Who are you, sir? And here comes the words, these three words that change Saul's life forever. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. These three words must have caused Saul's head and heart to to spin, right? Jesus is actually alive. It's true. The resurrection is true. What his followers were proclaiming and preaching about and, and sharing with people in Jerusalem that I tried to stop, it's actually true. He must have, don't, don't you know, he must have just for a moment there, he must have thought about Stephen. This young man that I allowed to be executed, that I approved of his murder because he was proclaiming that Jesus was alive. And I stood in the way. And it's true. Jesus is alive. And here's the other thing he must have been thinking. I missed it. I missed it. I had been trained in the law. I mean, what does Saul say about himself? For those of you who have studied the scriptures, I, you know, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was, a, I was an expert in the law. Uh, as to righteousness, I was, think about this statement, I was blameless. Talk about swimming and drowning in Lake Me. Oh, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. And yet, and yet, I missed the most important thing. I missed Jesus. And if we're not careful, friends, we can do the same thing. Yeah, you, you can know a lot about God and not know God. You, you can lot, know a lot of data points about God, a lot of history, a lot of knowledge, which is all good. But all of that should lead you to one thing that is the greatest thing that you could ever know and understand, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, even the demons know me. Even the demons believe in me. What God wants for each and every person and what's modeled here in our text today is a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Not just to know about him, but to know him. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear the difference? Anybody with me? Not just to to know about him, but to know him. Do, Do you know Jesus today? Not just about, I'm not asking do you know about Jesus. Many of you grew up with a religious background and a church background and you know a lot about Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus that not only allows you to know his presence today, but allows you to have eternity promised to you forever? Do you know Jesus in that way? That's what's happening in our story. I am Jesus, Jesus says to Saul, and that changes everything. And then Jesus says to him these words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Ouch. 
we learn a valuable lesson here, and that is to persecute Christ's people is to persecute Christ himself. And for those of you who are being persecuted for your faith, you're being attacked for your faith or your witness, someone's coming against you, the reality is they're not really coming against you. They're coming against Jesus. And this is after Jesus has ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And what Jesus is saying to Saul is, all of your persecution against my people is actually persecution against me. On 9-11, when America was attacked, there were two specific targets. There were two specific locations and groups of people that were targeted, but all of us were attacked. And in the same way, when a, a Christ follower across the world is attacked in any kind of way, in the ways that the church is being persecuted today by different groups or by different people, it's actually an attack on Jesus himself. The text tells us that after this interaction, Jesus says, but I want you to, I want you to rise. Resurrection language. Circle that in your scriptures if you're following along. I want you to rise. Resurrection. Enter the city and you will be told what to do. It's interesting to me that as Saul has a new commission now, and a new commissioner, Jesus himself, the first order of business for Saul is to wait. Isn't that interesting? The first thing that God wants Saul to do is to stop, to be still, and to wait. And isn't that the hardest thing for many of us to do? We want something that we can go and do. Tell me something that I can say. Tell me something that I can do. But God wants us to wait and to be still. And some of you are in a season right now of your life where God is asking you to stop. He's getting your attention. He's asking you to stop and to be still long enough to hear his voice. In a world that's so busy, in a world that's so cluttered and so loud, it's so important for us to be still and to listen for the voice of God. So God stops Saul and then he says, I want you to go into the city and you'll be told what to do. But for now, wait. And for many of you, that's the word that God has for each of you is to wait. And you will be told what to do. I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. You are a human being, not a human doing. God has to work in you before he can do what? Before, before he can work through you. And if you miss the process of God working in you, then the work that's done through you won't be all that God wants it to be. But that requires being still, stopping and allowing God to work on you and who you are. That's what's happening here. Verse 7 says, I love this. The, verse 7 says, the men who were traveling with Saul, like he's got the papers, he's leading the way. These big strong guys that are going to arrest men and women and drag them away from their families and, and arrest them and put them into prison in Jerusalem. This whole gang of people that are on their way to Damascus, which was about a five to seven day journey from Jerusalem. They're watching all this happen, right? And it says that they, they can hear the voice, but they can't see Jesus. They can see parts of it, but they don't understand. But the reason why this is so important is because it objectifies the event. This wasn't just a, you know, Saul having bad pizza and just having this weird experience. There were other witnesses to this event. There were other people that saw this happen and, and gave witness to this event happening and God meeting Saul in this miraculous way. And then finally in our text today, as Saul goes, uh, rises up and the men traveling with him stood, st stand speechless. Verse 8 says that Saul rose, resurrection language again, circle that in your scriptures. He rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. 
And they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank anything. Big bad Saul, who's on his way to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, is now being led by hand into Damascus because he can't see anything. This is the picture of a broken man. A person that has been completely humbled before God. He cannot even guide himself and walk into the city without help. And here's the principle for each of us. God can work in broken people. God can work in broken people. God can work with your brokenness. God can't work with your pride. Pride is a repellent to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Because when you're so full of yourself, you can't be full of God. I heard someone say it this way, either be humble before God or be humble before God. Be humble or be humbled. Saul has been humbled and now out of that humility and brokenness, God's getting ready to do an incredible work in his heart and through his life. And he can do the same through each of us. But we have to be humble. We have to be broken. God can use brokenness. God can work with brokenness. God can't work with pride. So he's got to get us to a place where we let go of ourselves, where we allow Lake Me to be drained so that we can see our immense need for his love and his grace. And the scripture says finally here in verse 9 that three days he, he was without sight and he didn't eat, he didn't drink. And what does that remind us of three days? Three days in darkness, three days without food, three days without drink. What, what else was three days? The tomb. This is, this is Saul's death, if you will. And he's about to be resurrected. The old Saul is about to die, just like the old self of us has to die when we come to Christ, so that the new life can be born in Christ. This was also an intense fast that, that, that Jews would have understood that, that when they, this was the most intense fast that they could take on, where they wouldn't eat or drink anything or talk to any, anyone for three whole days to show a, a deep sense of repentance and brokenness before the Lord. So this is what's happening here. This is not punishment. This is preparation for what God wants to do in Saul's life. Remember, Saul had never met Jesus. So one day Jesus met Saul. Our passage begins with Saul breathing threats of, of murder, and it ends with Saul quietly waiting on the Lord to work in his heart. Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus would change him forever, and through his changed life, by grace, God, or Paul's life would, would be used to change so many other people's lives. His work and his ministry would influence countless others. Many of you in the room today have been influenced through the life and the ministry of Paul. So let me finish with his own words, and we'll continue next week, part two. But let's, let's finish by hearing from Paul himself his own words about his conversion story and the difference that it made in his heart and the difference that it can make in each of our hearts as we prepare to leave today. If you would, if you're comfortable, would you just close your eyes? And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you, Paul's own writing about his conversion. And as you hear it, I want you to think about your own story and what God has done in your life and what God wants to continue to do in your life. Paul wrote these words in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. 
If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. God, would you give us this type of righteousness, not through our own works, because we can never achieve it, but through our faith in you, Jesus, and your accomplished work on our behalf through the cross and your resurrection. Would you drain each and every one of us today of Lake Me, the lake that so many of us are drowning in of self-righteousness, self-preservation, self-focus, Would you help us to see our need for you, Jesus? And may that change us forever. And finally, Lord, I pray this prayer and I ask all of you who are Christ followers to agree with me in this. God, would you see fit today among the peoples who are persecuting you, Jesus, who are persecuting the cross, who are persecuting the church today, would you raise up among those people, from among those people, another Saul? Would you reach a member of that group or, or that person who's, who's raging against the church, persecuting the church? Would you meet them in an only God way and change their lives so that they can change lives for the sake of the gospel? We pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen.